allows the sound. Is it okay? Okay. Uh, by the way, I'm sort of looking at this new setup we have. Uh, thanks to David, we have this new um, TV mount that kind of goes up. It's one of these sort of pull-down mounts, fireplace mounts. That So um, it's going to be a little unusual today because I'm not used to it. I'm going to try to occasionally look at the camera here, but it's uh, much further back and much higher. So this is our new setup for when people are here in person. Um, and so we'll see how it goes. Okay. So our last, this is our, our uh, will be our last full Sunday on on Zoom. Of course, you know, we'll continue. As people need to be on Zoom, it's, of course, fine. Uh, but next week is when we welcome people back. And uh, beaming eye-to-eye, or ear-to-ear here. Can't wait for that. Uh, so this morning we'll... Um, let's wait for a second. Bye, guys. Okay. So this morning we're going to continue our look at uh, the, the Blue Cliff record. And we haven't done one of these in a while um, without guest speakers and Sashin, etc. So we're going to dive back into the Blue Cliff record and look at case number 19. This is called Gute's One Finger. And um, we're going to begin with the, as always, we begin with the uh, introduction by Engo. Uh, and he begins this case like this. He says, uh, when a particle of dust is raised, it comprises the great earth. When a flower blooms, the world springs forth. But when dust is not yet raised and a flower has not yet bloomed, how can it be seen? Therefore, I say, it's like cutting a skein of thread. With one cut, it is all cut. Or like dyeing a skein of thread. With one dyeing, all is dyed. Now, if you cut off all complications and bring forth your family treasure... Then you comply everywhere with high and low, and there is no difference between front and back. Each one will fully manifest. If you are, if it is not yet so, look at the lines below. And here's the main case. Whenever Gute was asked about Buddhism, he simply stuck up one finger. And Secho's verse for this case. He says, For the way he responds, I deeply cherish old Gute. Throughout the universe, is there another like him? He cast a log adrift on the sea. In the night of turbulence, together he attends to blind turtles. Okay. So, I want to begin today with um, a little bit about the purpose or the point of koan training and looking at these cases. Um, 
the reason is, is because uh, a group of teachers and I have been meeting, we meet regularly, and we've been talking about how um, there is a, a growing um, trend in American Buddhism, American Zen Buddhism, to study these koans um, in groups or in um, sort of a didactic, philosophical way, even among serious Zen practitioners, and um, in a way that is quite outside of the, the tradition of working on these one-on-one um, with a teacher. And, um, and so I thought it was worth re-emphasizing, at least from my limited point of view, uh, the point of these, these, these stories, these koans. Um, generally speaking, I would say that koans like these have two main purposes. Um, first, and most importantly, they always are a vehicle for seeing our nature. This Japanese word called kensho, uh, which just means seeing nature or seeing the way things are. Seeing means confirming or putting our doubts to rest about the way things are. And from a Buddhist perspective, the whole problem of why we suffer is because we don't see things the way they are, but rather we see things through our mental filters. And so when we hear about the experiences of these masters through these cases and other things, um, it's not just some cool, weird, uh, bizarre, esoteric experience. It really does come, come down to putting an end to uh, the suffering that we experience. And in, in, in that way, each of these, you can see, is actually an act of compassion. Of course, there are all kinds of ways we can reduce our suffering, you know, even exercising and eating right and um, doing therapy and all these things that are so necessary to maintain a sense of well-being and reduce suffering, working with other people, you know, uh, giving. All these are practices that support compassion. But the, what the Buddha realized that there, that is that there are some fundamental dissatisfaction that remains that seems to go untouched even even after uh, thoroughgoing um, practices of therapy and mindfulness. And from a Zen point of view, there's this dissatisfaction that arises from the core belief that um, that it's sort of like a Almost like a BIOS. Um, I don't. I don't know much about computer science, but uh, what I do know is the BIOS, this binary in and out operating system, or is that what it's called? Uh, something like that. Any any computer people out there? Um, uh, this BIOS, this very basic, most fundamental software that is running in us, um, it's very subtly in the background. This baseline program is laden with the notion that I'm separate from the world. And somehow, these koans, um, when worked with in a very specific way, 
help us see through that baseline programming. And you could say more than just this baseline programming, it disrupts the running of that programming. It doesn't just help us see it. That is an important part of practice, of course, but um, disrupting it is really where it's at. Again, such an important point that while awareness is important, you know, becoming aware of something is important, it's often just the first step to changing something. Awareness itself is not enough. I think all of us can attest to that. In fact, awareness can be a very uncomfortable place because we become aware of what we're doing and how that differs from the way we are or the way we would like to be. And so awareness can be a very painful place, can't it? We become aware of our patterns, and then yet, I don't know how to change them, I don't know what to do with them. And um, but again, in Zen terms, that's actually a good thing, because it can be a motivator you know, to, to become aware of something and yet not quite get it yet. It can become a motivator to, to, towards change. But then some people stay with awareness too long. This awareness stage too long. And it then just becomes another added layer of pain. Sort of a self-conscious awareness. So seeing our nature really is about fundamentally seeing through to the very source of which, from which this suffering arises. And here it's worth mentioning that when I, I often use the word or the verb to see, right? To see. You hear that? I, t- I, I look at my notes and I, here it is again. <laughs> to see, to see, see this, see that, right? But we're not talking about just seeing with the eyes. We're talking about with the whole body. To see not something out there, but to realize that it's inside of us. And even the word inside is in, probably misses the point. And then secondly, that koans not only help us see through with our whole bodies this sense of separation, but then broaden what comes from that, that relief. The other day, before it got so hot, I was working in the house and I realized how stuffy it had become in there. And so um, I cracked one of the windows and, and then just immediately felt this relief as the stuffiness began to fade and then went back to working. But then, and then something hit me and I said, something said, why, why just crack one window, right? Why, why not open them all? And just went around the house and threw open all the windows. And just one after another, it just became this sort of transparent, this um, exchange of air that began to happen. And so with each window, it became more airy, more fresh. And so... It just reminded me again, this training that we do, why stop? Why 
why, why, why not throw them all open? So these koans work one after another to throw open the mind over and over and over again experientially, providing more and more relief as, we, um, as the mind wants to revert back to its dualistic tendencies. Then these koans go, no, open back up and re-energize um, with each insight. Because this, this programming that we've, I mentioned this morning is so deep. It is very deep. You know, it, when, for example, we talk in our society as we are doing about making changes to policing or to environmental policy or all the so many issues that need to be addressed. We don't often see that if we don't address the root causes, it, it is an endless problem. It's an endless patch job. This is what people don't realize, the endless patch job that we're doing And so these koans help us, hopefully, if they're engaged again in an experiential way, uh, to interrupt that very DNA of separation that is so at the core of our delusion. And this is why they're so difficult to understand, because they go against the stream. They don't line up with our typical dualistic experience of the world. But this is, again, what gives them their potency, which is very radical because the very logical way that we approach suffering in our lives is to try to look, to try to surround ourselves with people, with things, with experiences that make sense to us, that agree with us. In a, certain, in a certain way, that makes a lot of sense, that strategy. It does. I mean, who could deny it? But what Buddhism recognizes is that the very search for what is comfortable, what is familiar, if we look closely at it, it takes a tremendous amount of time, it takes a tremendous amount of effort, a tremendous amount of discrimination, and then becomes the very source of our suffering. The very source of our suffering is the very search for what is comfortable, what is familiar. To seek out what is comfortable, what is familiar, what lines up with our beliefs. And so, of course, I've said this many times, as we encounter Buddhism, as we encounter practice, then, of course, we'll do that too with the practice. We find that that template becomes re-stitched uh, on to the practice. We find that uh, that that this this when we run into these teachings, it, it can become challenging because it doesn't line up with our our preconceived notions. And so this, this koan today, in this case with Gute, 
is a ex good example of one of those. Again, the case is very short. It says every time someone would come to Gute for instruction, he would simply hold up one finger. This, um, this case is found in the three major collections of koans that we work with in our tradition. And so a student working through the, the, uh, these books um, encounters it three different times. And if those of you who have heard this before are familiar with the case from the Mumon Khan, where it's a little bit more elaborate. Gute, it starts the same way, but then goes on to um, bring in the second character, one of his students, his attendant, his young boy attendant, who would mimic Gute. That when people came as a guest or would ask what his master taught, he would also hold up a finger. And Gute heard about this from somebody and, and confronted the boy and said, I hear that you understand Zen. And the boy held up his finger. And at that point, uh, we're told in the story that Gute grabbed his hand and cut off his finger. And the boy went screaming from the hall, holding his finger, so it was cut off and and then as he was leaving in pain Gute called to the boy and the boy turned his head looking at Master Gute and Gute held up one finger and at that the boy awoke had an awakening experience So this is the Mumon conversion, but the, the Blue Cliff record in the Book of Serenity, this Soto collection, has a different emphasis. It doesn't emphasize this awakening in that same way. It doesn't emphasize this boy at all. It just says that any time Master Gute would come, uh, be asked about Buddhism or Zen, he would simply hold up a finger. Not much to work with there. So when we hear something like this and we don't know what to do with it, our mind begins to scramble. You can probably feel it now if you're engaged. Investigate that. What does that feel like now to try to understand what's going on, what he's getting at, what is he, te what is he teaching? Perhaps the mind goes to what is the instruction there? What is the, what is the finger pointing at? You know, we have this saying in Zen, don't mistake the finger for the moon, right? Don't mistake what is being the pointer for what is being pointed at. And so the mind, this is what it does. It, and in doing so, it misses the point altogether. Because this is not a metaphor. Gute holding up his finger is not <clears throat> what you would call instruction. We have this term called direct pointing in Zen. A, perhaps a better uh, 
The description would be a direct presentation. And this is where a certain quality of mind is important. Because to understand or to really get a direct presentation of anything, we have to be receptive. We have to have, we have to be in a state of receptivity, don't we? That is why, for example, it's so important to sit before listening to a talk like this. You know, people who just come to hear a talk, of course, there are times where we have to do that. There are times where we can't sit ahead of time. But to, when we come without sitting, we have a much harder time because the mind is in a state of grasping. Even subtly, we may not sort of recognize that, but it is. The mind is most of the time in a state of grasping or a state of um, contraction. And so what Zazen does is relax that contraction. It relaxes the mind so that it is more receptive. And so these presentations become more direct. Whether, Whether we're talking about something like the case from today with Gute and his finger or noticing the sunlight hitting the floor or even having a difficult conversation with somebody, cooking a meal. If we were to take this to an extreme and sort of wonder, what would it be like if the mind was completely relaxed, completely receptive, with no filters? you might begin to see that what was tip, what is typically dull, our experience of life, would become illumined. As Master Mumon says, Master Mumon was the compiler of the Mumonkan. He said, when the mind is not consumed with unnecessary things, then no season is too much for us. So, so Gute, this master, <clears throat> going back to him, he was not much is known about him. He was a teacher in the Tang era um, in China. Gute is his Japanese name, um, and not no, not much is known about his life. We do have a couple of stories. Uh, we do do know that as a young man, he decided to practice on his own. And this is typical even these these days to practice on one's own. And we're told that in this hermitage that he was living in, probably a very small hut, size of a single room, uh, one day there was a, a knock at the door and the door opened and Gute was sitting in Zazen and this nun, Jisai, came in without even really announcing herself. 
and as was the custom, she walked around his seat three times, but then refused to take off, or didn't, I don't know about refused, but didn't take off her, her hat, which was uh, against the protocol, against, you know, sort of common decency, you always take off your hat when you come into somebody's house. And then she, she looked at Gutai and said, if you can say a word of Zen, I'll take off my hat and stay. And Gutai was at a loss, scrambling for, for words. So apparently this happened again, and then finally she said, and she took her stuff and left. And as she was leaving, Gute finally got his wits about him and ran after her and said, Hey, why, why don't you stay the night? It's getting late. Why don't you stay? And she said, If you can say a word of Zen, I'll stay. And again, he scrambled. He didn't know what to say. And so she left. And this apparently <laughs> sent Gute into a tailspin of doubt how, what am I doing on this mountain here, sitting alone, and yet I can't even respond? What does it mean to say a word of Zen? What is that? How would I do that? And so he, he felt very, um, he felt that doubt in himself come up and decided that this is, he's got to tackle this if he was going to have any real peace in his life and not just escape using Zazen, he had to train. He had to, you know, find a teacher and submit himself to actual real Zen training. And then uh, we're told uh, in the typical sort of semi-shamanistic tradition that Zen seems to, these early Zen teachers seem to embody that he had this dream that night that He shouldn't go, that he should stay on the mountain and wait because a teacher would come and visit if he was patient. And so, so he did. This uh, is an interesting thing. I just thought of this, that, you know, the, this, this intuitive sense of trusting our dreams, you know, it's, there's not many people these days that actually are sort of in touch with that kind of intuition. Um, typically, these days, we're so uh, logic-minded that we, we just discount these things. And, you know, of course, dreams are just dreams. But um, I think this larger point is important about getting in touch with our intuit- intuitive side. There's other ways of knowing other than just with the this big frontal cortex brain of ours. So the story goes that I think, what, 10 days or something, 10 days later or something, uh, Tenryu, this master Tenryu, um, was on his, some sort of pilgrimage and stopped by and Gute uh, introduced himself and they got talking and he relayed this story of Jisai, this nun that came by, this dilemma. And after listening to this story, 
can you help a finger? And at that, Kute finally saw his own nature. And then that's where he himself began to use it. You know, when we think about what this this finger is about, we go back to so many of the teachings in Zen, so many of the masters pointing to things, trees, beards, and sticks, and cats, and flowers, seven-pound hemp shirt, three pounds of flax, In essence, turning towards what is bound by form. Because we live in the world of bounds. We live in the world of measurements, of peculiarities, particularities. And in a real sense, this is the fundamental human dilemma. We are born into bodies. We age, we get sick, and ultimately we die. And so from the very beginning, the very start of our lives, we come up against the limitation of our own bodies. And yet on some level, many of us feel that we're more than our bodies, more than this lump of red flesh. I mean, we can, we can imagine a past, we can imagine a future, we can project our minds anywhere on the planet, we can imagine places we haven't even seen, we can empathize with other people, putting ourselves in other people's shoes. We create stories about the universe that we're constantly compelled to explore. And there's something about the human condition where we're always compelled to reach for something beyond what we can see. And of course, we can, from a classic Buddhist point of view, you know, we can take all of that and say, well, this is the source of our suffering. This kind of reaching, this kind of exploring, this kind of projecting, this kind of reaching for the past or for the future. Never content. But I would say that this we can also see this as a pointing to something else. This human capacity is pointing to the mind trying to know itself the universe trying to know itself. In essence, the mind is trying through all these different ways to embrace its own boundlessness. Of course, we can't live without our bodies. How do we find that boundlessness that we so intuitively long for? How do we let go of the constriction that we feel? 
is there a way to live within this limited form, within this world of form, and yet experience it without constriction? And also, not experience anyone else's limits as constricting. I was thinking the other day about, after a particularly hard week on some of the folks I work with and how many people suffer from thoughts, for example, thoughts of suicide, And in many cases, not all, but in many cases, the truth is that people actually don't want to die. But what they want is not to feel that constriction of their minds and bodies. There is something that wants to open. And that, I think, is understandable to anybody. And yet the way we go about looking for that relief is often causes more constriction, more, more growth, the next horizon, the next planet. There seems to be a formula that humans keep going back to that is hardwired in our search, that compels us outward. Isn't it curious? We always go outward. More. And this, so this is why Zen, in essence, is so radical. Because we don't look elsewhere to find that freedom, but instead turn back to what is here, now. Back to our bodies, our families, our surroundings, the pain we experience. And we ask, how can this become my refuge? One way you could say that that from the moment we are born, our task is to learn how to master this form that we embody. To find happiness and peace. And so the masters would always point to what is here in a way to challenge their students to find that freedom where they stand, not in some other place or some other time, not in the world of ideas, dreams, theories. as Dawi says in Mental Fabrications. But again, to do so, we have to cultivate that mind of receptivity. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to truly be receptive if the mind is not quiet. To be receptive is to receive what is not our preferred picture. The other day I received an email and forwarded it to our board members from a person who was on our mailing list 
um, about our announcement. They had responded to our announcement about reopening and um, our COVID our COVID policy requiring people to be vaccinated in order to be on premises here in the Zendo. And they were clearly in the email angry about our vaccination policy and demanded that we remove her from the mailing list. Again, clearly our email didn't line up with her preferred picture. She said, how, how dare a quote-unquote spiritual center require that people be vaccinated? But as I said to the board in the email, I think, this is the kind of thing that happens, and not infrequently. Um, I had one person leave the Sangha because I read from a David Brooks book in Taisho at one point. A conservative uh, columnist. About as liberal of a conservative as you can get. But nonetheless, someone accused me of doing a disservice to the Sangha because I was addressing psychological issues in Taisho. And distanced. It's not that we shouldn't have reactions to things. I mean, everybody does. We all don't like things. But the thing is, how is it that we act on them? Do we distance? Do we push away? Thinking about this woman on the mailing list, it's such a painful strategy. Take me off your mailing list. Of course, the skillful thing would be to recognize that strong energy, the disagreeing energy, which we all, we all, again, this is what community, as we face coming back to working with each other, we're going to come across that more and more. But then the strong energy is the signal for us as practitioners to say, what do I, what is it teaching me? How can I work with it rather than trying to get rid of it? Because this is in essence what we do when we become angry and anxious and we try to discharge it, we try to get rid of it, distance from it. But in doing so, when we do that, we reinforce that need to discharge. We reinforce the need to get rid of that energy rather than learning to sit with it, watch it, be it for what it is. So again, as, as, we, as we come as a society back into Reopening, you can see this. The conflicts are rising again. There was sort of this dampening down of shootings and dampening down of conflicts as people, except, you know, of course, the domestic things that go on sort of under the surface. But we can expect that as we come together again as com in communities, just like health officials are saying, you know, that we'll see a sort of an uptick in flu and cold cases as we begin to interact with each other. 
we can expect to see more conflict. As people come back to the zendo, we're going to be rubbing shoulders, so to speak, right? Interacting. People won't like things, will like things. The, 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 the challenge, just like in t- the Zen training model is interesting. It's, it loves that. It says, rub shoulders. You knock those hard edges off. Rub against the things you don't like. Because this is rich territory. We have the presence of mind to do that. Receptivity to what is. In Engo's introduction to this case today, he says, if you cut off all complications and bring forth your family treasure, then you comply everywhere with high and low, and there's no difference between front and back. Each one will be fully manifest. To be clear, that complications all arise from the mind. And so in Zen, we recognize the need for strong medicine, something to cut through, to make plain, something to that disrupts the mind, that complicates and is therefore unable to receive. And the most valuable tool we have for that is Zazen itself. We take a very complicated mind and we begin to gently work with it, bringing it back over and over again Sometimes for years, years until it begins to settle. But then, you know, even that settling, that settled mind can, it can be a little too hypnotized. This is where the masters recognize the need for a catalyst. One thinks of crystals they form in a test tube and I read this somewhere recently that you simply put the solution in I don't know what the solutions are but then what it needs is just a little tap and then crystals instantly form this is what Gute's one finger is about At the end of his life, Gute said, all of my life I've used this one finger Zen and have never exhausted it. One of the things that I think becomes clear as we get to know Gute through directly working on a case like this is how much of a person of integrity he must have been, a person of compassion, and someone who had a great deal of trust to stay with that same teaching. I mean, it doesn't say that, you know, once in a while he held up one finger. It said every time a student would ask about Buddhism, he would hold up a finger. He knows it can't be exhausted. He knows that the whole world is in that finger. And he's wanting others to see it 
teaching the same lesson over and over again. Sometimes, as we know, we have to hear something a thousand times before we finally see it, get it. And by staying with one thing, the practice, for example, we develop a deep trust in it. Even when we can't see what we want to see. And in doing that, it somehow magically develops a trust in ourself, which so many of us lack. We become loyal to this true one of no rank. Even when we mess up, act, say something stupid, lose our temper, all the, you know, all that stuff, we know that fundamentally there is nothing lacking. But when instead we jump from one thing to the next, we abandon that trust-building process. This is what's so important about continuous practice, as Dogen called it. Not fleeing at the difficulties, like the email, for example. When our spouse says something that's, or a boss, or a friend, or says something, or a teacher says something we don't like. Not fleeing, not abandoning. So, Secho's verse says, in his, um, he says, for the, the way he responds, I deeply cherish old Gute. The universe, throughout the universe, is there anyone like him? He cast a log adrift on the sea. In the night of turbulence, together he attends to blind turtles. I think I've said this before, but if, if, if it's not clear by now, sometimes you have to have a sort of master's degree in Chinese and Indian mythology to get some of these references. So if you, if you don't get them, it's, it's, it's not because you don't have an open Zen eye. Um, it's because there, there are all these stories woven in here. And um, so, so this particular image of a blind turtle in this log drift on the sea comes from the story from one of the sutras. I think it might be the Lotus Sutra. <clears throat> and in it, um, a turtle, a sea turtle, who has only one eye on its belly, longs to see the sky. And, but it can't. Until one day it notices this piece of driftwood floating by with a hole in it and decides to grab onto it from underneath and sticks its belly with its eye against the hole and finally sees the sky, finally sees the open sky. This practice is about clearing, clearly seeing that mind, that sky through Zazen over and over again and then one day catching that log And seeing that the sky can't be exhausted, that the finger can't be exhausted, and then ultimately seeing that nothing can be exhausted. Why? Why? It's a good question, maybe. Why, why can't anything be exhausted? Why can't this one finger be exhausted? 
So this is the question maybe I'll just end with. Kind of a dangling participle or something. Why, why is it that this one finger of Gute can never be exhausted? Okay. Well, next week we will um, be open. So I look forward to seeing people in person. Um, we uh, are a little uh, are out of time. I was going to open it up for questions, but instead, why don't we why don't we end? We have the precepts class for people in there at twelve thirty. So why don't we end and recite the four vowels? Um, there's somebody who I'm not sure who's not on mute because I just keep hearing some rumbling. So I'm not sure. Let me take a look here. Okay. There we go. Okay. So why don't we stop here? Recite the four vowels, followed by three prostrations. <laughs>